Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week we are joined by someone who feels like a friend, although I've never seen him before and actually never spoken to him before, just uh, text and emails and things like that. And that is Philip Mantle, an author and the publisher of the Flying Disc Press. Uh, you've probably heard his name many times because there's got to be at least 12 or 15 shows with his authors that we've had in in the uh, two years that the shows existed. So obviously, uh, he's sort of like our, our booking agent to an extent, or an ad hoc booking agent. And he's joining us from the UK. Uh, Mr. Mantle, thank you very much for joining us, and how are you today? Good evening, Jeff. I'm fine. I'm, please, please call me Philip. I certainly will. All right. So, Philip it is then. Um, so... We know that this is the 75th anniversary of the study of ufology. Obviously, Flying Disc Press uh, spends a lot of time on ufology. Uh, we, you know, we've had uh, authors like Tom Carey who have spent 30 years or so studying ufology. But it's not just ufology. We, we, you know, there's there's always sort of a connection. But like for instance, M.G. Stevens has been on the show twice, and it it is and it isn't exactly on on uh, UFOs. It's it's a lot of supernatural and and sort of. Uh, what do you call it? alternative contacts? Um, so let's start. Let's start first with your most recent book, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Jeff. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, just by coincidence, um, my latest book come out this year when it is the anniversary, uh, and it's called UFO Landings UK. Kind of speaks for itself, really. <laughs> Well, as, as I've explained to others, when I first got into this subject, which was back in 1980, uh, I live in the, in the north of England in a county uh, of West Yorkshire. 
for those that are, you know are not familiar with it, I'm about five miles from the city of Leeds, or about forty miles from the city of Manchester, fifty or so miles from the city of Liverpool. So we're all in the north and the northwest. And I've had an interest in all things paranormal as a, as a, as a teenager. And uh, when I left high school in 1974, I, I'd got an interest in the UFO subject. And I grew and grew. And then in 1980, uh, I joined a local organization. It just been set up in the city of Leeds. It was simply called the Yorkshire UFO Society, Jeff, you know. Mm -hmm. I formed by two brothers, Mark and Graham Birdsell. And I jumped in with both feet, and I've been involved in the subject ever since. Now, I hadn't been involved that many years uh, when a, a UFO landing case came our way. And I, the, the area that I lived in um, was predominantly a, an industrial area, mostly coal mines. My father worked down the coal mine all, all his life. They've all gone now, but back then it was coal mines. There were still a few mills left factories. I worked in factories for the biggest part of my, of my working life. And we had a lady call us from a, a small mining town called Normanton in West Yorkshire. It was just a few miles from, literally from where I lived. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, she gets me on the phone. You won't believe me. You won't believe me, Philip. Anyway, to cut a long story short, myself and Mark Birdsell went to interview this lady. But it was only a few years earlier um, she lived in a row of terraced houses and it was a cul-de-sac so it was a dead end at the end of the street and she said that three or four of her children had been outside playing with their friends it was a lovely, lovely sunny day they are playing a ball game and she was washing the dishes just after lunch when one of the children came running in and said Mom, Mom, there's an aeroplane crash in the field so at the bottom of these, uh, this cul-de-sac were some trees, a little stream, and then a hill. Right. And um, her name was Mrs. Westerman. And she lived in an elevated house as well. So you went up six or seven steps to get in the front door. So she came out, and she looked out, and she could, she could see across these fields. She said, Philip, it wasn't an airplane. There was something shaped like a Mexican hat. <laughs> like a sombrero? Yeah, on the ground in this field and it was like a silver grain color so she got the children walked down through the cul-de-sac through the trees you lose sight of the hill at one point go down a little dip and you come up the other side and the field was bordered then by a fence and she said this thing is still there but now there are three men the tall men in what we call white boiler suits Jeff you might call them coveralls okay they didn't have a, you know, an astronaut's helmet on. They had something covering their face, like a visor. And, and they were waving something over the ground. You didn't know what they were doing. One of the children tried to climb the fence, but she, she held him back. At this point, these three humanoids walked to the rear of this object. It rose into the sky, stopped, and shot off at an angle in a, into a clear blue sunny sky. And she was absolutely bamboozled by this. Mark and I interviewed her, some of the children. They didn't call it a spaceship or aliens. They just said this thing, right. you know. And these were the type of people I'd grown up with all my life, Jeff. Her husband 
work down the coal mine. They were still open then. Um, the kids were playing a made-up ball game, which was the same kind of ball game I played as a child. You won't find it in any of the on any of the TVs. It's a little thing we used to make up and play ourselves. And um, she thought. She thought. She said, "I sat down at night thinking this will be on the television news. You know, we have some local TV stations. It nothing." She thought, well, it'll be in the newspaper. Not, not a thing. She even asked some of her neighbours if they'd seen it. And they just looked at her, you know, <laughs> dumbfounded, really. So that puzzled her even more. Now, what is interesting, um, uh, Jeff, is just before we had the lockdown in 2019, mm-hmm. um, I'd, I'd done some TV work here. And a lady from New Zealand contacted me. She'd heard me actually on a podcast. And she said, Philip, you talked about this case in Normanton, but you didn't mention the lady's name. I'd just forgotten to use the the lady's name. It was Mrs. Westerman. She said, I'm an immigrant in in New Zealand. I used to live in the UK. In fact, I used to live in Normanton. Oh, wow. What was the lady's name? So I, I emailed her back. And I said, it was Mrs. Westerman. She replied, she said, you'll never believe this, but my best friend when I was a, uh, lived in Normanton was called Westerman. I'll contact her. So she did. And lo and behold, her best friend was one of those children that I met all those years ago. Wow. And she put, she put me in touch. Um, I won't mention that. I'll call her Susan, but that's not a real name. Okay. But Susan, Susan said, yeah, I remember this, 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 and this. And we were arranging to meet up when we went into lockdown and so on. I see. Just recently, I mean, literally within the last few weeks, I did a, uh, a TV documentary here. And a, young, a, a gentleman contacted me on email. And now this, this TV show was nothing to do with this. It was all about Roswell. But he contacted me and he said, I've looked you up, Philip. He says, my partner was one of those children. Back at Normanton, she's literally just told me now. Because hmm. they'd, watch, they'd watched me on te- television, and she turned around to a partner and said, did I tell you, when I was a child, I saw a UFO. He said, no, he never told me that. And it was this incident that back in Normanton, back in, in, in 1980. So I, I, I rang this lady up. She gave me a phone number. I rang her up. And um, she says, yeah. She says, Mrs. Westerman's daughter was my best friend. And she described everything they saw. She's even done a, a little diagram of where everyone lived. And um, it's a long time since I was actually at the, the location. I, I, I can't remember the exact street. And so she said, here, yeah. she did like a Google map thing and she showed me exactly where it is again. And it all, all, all fits into place. So you so got I, second I, and third sourcing, like. 39 years later. Well, they were first-hand. She was one of the children that was there. Um, Because we interviewed another of the children's friends who hadn't seen anything because he'd actually gone home for his lunch. And when he came back, he missed it all. And and we spoke to him, and he was not happy. He was not happy, you know. And um, so we had, you know, re-interviewed, if you like, one of the witnesses from back then. I'd... I don't. I don't think we actually spoke to this uh, young youngster then, 
We only interviewed Mrs. Westerman's children. This was one of the friends who, but nonetheless, who witnessed it all. So, you know, we had confirmation all these years back. I mean, I, I know these type of people, Jeff. I, you know, I was one of them. My father was a coal miner. I was born and raised in a coal mining community. The, Mrs. Westerman wouldn't allow us to take any photographs. We weren't allowed to use her name at that point. I've only used it because I, I, I assume she's no longer with us, and I'm right. And um, she didn't want any publicity. And um, so you have, you have two if two things, you've either believed that they're telling the truth or they're lying. And I could find no reason at all why they would want to lie, you know. And then they've come forward all these years later, not prompted by me, just by chance seeing me on TV or on a podcast, you know. Right. And so that, that got me interested in, in UFO landing accounts. And that account is in the new book, UFO Landings UK. So what it did, Whilst I investigated all kinds of, you know, UFO reports that came our way, my files, if you like, on UFO landings started to accumulate. And again, come come the um, the pandemic when we were all locked up, I, 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 you know, I thought, well, I, I've thought about writing this book before. So during the pandemic, hey, presto, I got it finished. And um, you'll even see that if, if you go on Amazon and look at the publication date, it says two years ago. Uh, I didn't publish it two years ago. I did, all I did was upload the cover at that point. But the, right. the first time you upload something, unless you put a publication date, which I didn't, it puts that date as the day it was published. So, uh, but, but uh, we've been making a documentary on, based on the book as well. So we filmed bits and pieces of that between the pandemic, the last bit of it was filmed this year and that will be out later this year sometime, I, you know. So so that's how it all came about, Jeff. Well, that's great. Um, I, I want to go back to those, the, the three. I, I mean, I think that you you implied what they were. So, I, you know, but when you were first telling, I wasn't sure if those were like government, you know, men in black types, obviously they weren't in black, or if, if the belief is that they were the crew uh, who were uh, somehow initiating or, or overseeing repairs because it seems to have taken back off and shot off uh, shortly after they were using their the wand or whatever device they were using to, uh, you know, I'm picturing like sort of like something from a sci-fi movie where like in a wand it's, uh, you know, tied in uh, maybe AI, I don't know. But uh, are, are, were they, do you think that they, or do, do the witnesses think that those were occupants of the vehicle or, or, or something governmental? Well, I certainly didn't think it was anything to do with the government. Okay. Um, I mean, this is a nondescript plot of land at the end of a cul-de-sac. There is nothing there, Jeff. Even to this day, there is nothing there. You know, Normanton as a town, you know, was was fed by the coal mine. They've long since gone. All the coal mines around here have gone. Um, on top of this little hill where they saw this thing, there used to be some electricity pylons. I assume they're still there. But they used to go out to a power station here called Ferry Bridge. That's gone because it was coal coal fired, and as you know, right. we're closing the coal fire. So no, no so coal, no, no coal electrical plants. Right? Yeah, there's no reason for anybody from anywhere to be in this little field at the end of of nowhere. There is a very busy um, motorway or highway, as you might call it, goes past Normanton. It's called the M62. It runs from the east coast across to the west coast. Uh, of the UK, 
So there's thousands of cars an hour go past it. It's a busy little place, but you know, if you drove past, if you were driving down the motorway, you wouldn't take any notice of the place, you know. So there's no reason for anybody to be there. We did, we did the local checks. We used to have a, heli a helicopter port outside of Leeds, a little, little private place. They had no idea what we were talking about. I, you know, that's long since gone. We didn't have a police helicopter then. There was no air ambulance. Um, but um, so you, you either believe them or disbelieve them. And, you know, I, at the end of the book, I, I leave the, um, the readers to come to their own, own conclusions, Jeff. I don't know. Did they report what, any what sign of injury, a physical injury? or, or no, 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 not at all. Nothing. Okay. You know, it was just almost and i might be saying it's you know i might be in incorrect it was almost if you, that you had to be at that place at that time to share this experience whatever it was because we we when i say we i mean i i've, I've run the story in our local newspaper here a couple of times down the years trying to find these children again and no one stepped forward and no one else stepped forward and said oh well i wasn't one of the but I saw something, you know, absolutely nobody. Of course, that could just mean that they haven't read the newspaper, of course, but so there is, uh, and that really puzzled Mrs. Westerman. She, she thought it'd be on the TV news. Was there a physical description uh, was beyond humanoid? Or like, like, what was the approximate height? Were there, were limbs elongated, thinner, shorter? They, I mean, they, they looked like you or I, they were tall. Okay. But they were that close to them, they said they didn't have gloves on, they had mittens. And they had boots that had a big wedge on them. Hmm. And it wasn't a helmet over their heads, it was some kind of visor That's over it. the front of their face. And um, the lady who's just stepped forward now, she said they were waving something over the ground, similar to, but she doesn't mean that they were this, like metal detectors if they were looking for something um, and, and, and that is it you know they didn't go into any any other details than that you know they didn't call them spaceships or flying saucers or, or aliens just this thing Mrs. Mrs. Westerman also described it as looking like a tank you know but with rounded edges but no gun to it so anything like that um, make of it what you will but that, that set me on the path looking at um, UFO landing cases in the UK down the decades, hence the book. And I found it rather nice, actually, that, you know, the book is out, and here you have one of those witnesses stepping forward. Yeah, no, that's great. And, uh, yeah, and she said, I'm going to read the book, Philip. I said, I, I offered to send her one. I assumed, bearing in mind, uh, Jeff, this is done on email and then on the mobile phone. Right, sure. I assumed this lady I'm talking to still lived in the area. But she doesn't. She actually lives in Cornwall, and you can't get any further away. That's the southernmost tip of the UK. Right. Because if she lived locally, I was going to offer to actually bring her a book and go and have a chat. Um, she says, "No, you're all right. I'm going to buy one." So, I, you know, I left it at that. Right, cha-ching. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, it wasn't. That I, I would. I would happily have sent the lady a book. I know I offered, but she says, "No, I'm, I'm going to get one." I'm so, just teasing. I, yeah, so, uh, so that, so that's sort of your origin story as to what got you interested, and and it actually, it sounds like as a result of uh, your work that uh, you, you now have a, a another witness that uh, you know maybe you can build upon that that story. 
So, okay, so that was your origin story. And then, so then, and, and so it started with you and a couple guys in, uh, in Yorkshire, I think you said, or Yorkchester. Yep. Uh, and uh, so, so what happened next? What, what was, how, how did it evolve? Well, you know, I was always the, the type of um, person that always wanted to know more, Jeff. I mean, I was very naive when I when I joined the Yorkshire UFO Society. I, I didn't know an awful lot about the subject. I read some books, seen maybe one or two documentaries, but um, you know, I just felt I I, I found my, my my niche in life, my home, if you like. I felt felt this was the place where I was meant to be. And I was the, the kind of kid at school. I was always the idiot who would stick his hand up and ask the dumb questions, mm-hmm. you know. I always, because I wanted, I was curious. I still have a curious mind now. I'll give, I'll give you an example. When I worked in the factory, I was trained to work on this huge uh, piece of equipment, a huge long plant. I, I won't go into the boring reasons why it, but so that this chap's, you know, he's training me how to use this equipment. And he said, at this point, you lift this roller. You, you know, you just press this button, this roller lifts up. And then put it down again after 17 seconds. I, I mean, so I said, okay, well, any idiot can do that. But I said, why 17 seconds? Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, he says, you know something, Philip? I've been training people for 10 years to work this equipment. You're the only one that's ever asked me that. And he explained it to me. And it, it was simple what he explained. But the fact was, I was the only one that had ever asked that question. Right. Because I'm the type of chap, if there's a big red button and says, don't push, I won't push it, but I want to know what would happen if I did. Well, that's probably the better choice. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that's, that gives you, you know, that, that's me. So I, I thought I'll, I'll join the Yorkshire UFO Society, which I did. I paid my, my membership fee, I think it was £2 for the year. I thought, I'll, with, they had monthly meetings and there was a presentation every time. I thought, I'll learn some more here. They had a, a whole table full of books, which was great because they, they were hard to come by. And um, I thought I'll, I'll read some more books, ask a few questions, write a few letters, and I'll have all the answers I want in no time. I mean, how naive was I? You know, so here I am all these years later, Jeff, you know, 40 plus years later, you know, still asking certain questions. I've had some of those questions answered, but by no means all of them. And um, so, again, as we moved into the 1980s, um, our county in the north of England used to be one large county, uh, but it, it had been split into four. It's simply North Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, East Yorkshire, South Yorkshire. I'm in West Yorkshire. In North Yorkshire, we have the Yorkshire Dales National Park, beautiful part of the world. For whatever reason, in the early to mid 1980s, um, areas in and around the Yorkshire Dales, around the market town of Skipton, in fact, um, started to have a lot of sightings, especially a, a, just above a small village called Carlton. It's just outside of Skipton. And above it, you drive through the village, it's just a small little village with a pub and a few, you know, nothing else. And then you go up the hill through it and it takes you onto the moors. That moorland is just heather. There are no livestock kept there. They mainly use it for game birds, you know, grouse, pheasant, partridge, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if you carry on over the moor, it takes you into the next county, which is Lancashire. 
and um, there's not much else there to be honest with you but for some reason Jeff UFO sightings started to come from these areas there's a couple of little villages in, in the dales there and there's a couple of businesses you know and um, somehow these sighting reports found their way to us we used to make ourselves very visible and because there was no internet in those days you know so we would leave flyers in pubs you know restaurants uh, reference libraries at local police stations with all our particular our name address telephone numbers and so on and so we were kept very busy so from an investigation point of view it was great can I ask a question that it may or may not uh, have an interesting answer or not uh, to it? Um, we're recording this on July 24th. You know, I, I always record shows and you know, I'm never exactly sure when I'm going to actually publish them, probably like you are with books. Uh, and yesterday I recorded a show with uh, someone named Maria Wheatley, who is a dowser and then she investigates a, you know, an entirely different uh, field that, you know, I don't think she would call it paranormal, but let's, let's call it paranormal just for the sake of, of brevity. Anyway, uh, the reason is because uh, we discussed a lot about the, the, the Fey folks. So my question is, is this part of the world that you're talking about, even though there's not a lot of, uh, sounds like urbanization there, a lot of, not a lot of tourist, you know, areas, not a, not giant metropolises, but there's a high degree of, uh, it sounds like, uh, UFO sightings. Uh, is, is there a history, a lore, or legend with a lot of fey folk, um, you know, or, or other mythologies, uh, legends, uh, you know, juridical or otherwise, tied to this area, or is is yeah, yeah, yeah. that is that is not not as much as some of the areas that Maria has probably dealt with, but there is yes, uh, and we found that out during our investigations. We hear about the old legends. There was uh, witchcraft still practiced in the area. Um, and, and if you go over into Lancashire, there's a place called Pendle, Pender Hill, where the, that was related to witchcraft. Further down the moors, what's called Rombold's Moor, uh, there is a place there called White Wells, and that's where the fairy folk. What are uh, moors? You know, what are moors? You don't know. You never seen the Hound of the Baskervilles? I did, and I also listen. I remember Beware the Moors from uh, from American Werewolves in and, London. Well, that's the same location. That is the, that is that is the moors. It's moorland. It's it's. You know, it's usually heather, or there may be livestock, usually sheep. So it's not—it's like, not like a swamp or anything. It's—it's it's like no, no, pasture it's land. Not land. No, it's it, yeah. So some of the moors will have livestock, mainly sheep. Others will have heather, you know, and grasslands, and will be used for game birds. But they are usually semi-rural now, rather than completely rural, gotcha. because you know the towns and cities have encroached on them. Once you get on there, there, there isn't an awful lot um, going on, even today, you know. And um, where we used to go, Carlton Moor, the road that used to go over the top of it was just a shortcut between one county and the next. There was nothing of any interest there at all. Pretty, you know. You, you might be maybe hear of um, um, Wuthering Heights, sure, from yeah. the Brontes. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. they live. Uh, where they lived in, in their town um, was was bordered by the Moors. And um, that's where, allegedly, they got a lot of their inspiration from, because it was so... I mean, it's, it's not easy to get to, to where they lived 
today. It's a place called Howarth, where the Bronte's lived. Right, that's but the book got, with uh, Heathcliff, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. So you'll go back a century or so when they lived there. <laughs> it was even more desolate. And um, there, is a, there is a place on the moor called Top Withins. And she said that's the inspiration for Wuthering Heights, you know. Uh, but there's nothing there. It's a beautiful part of the world. The, the fields are segregated by what we call dry stone walls. So there's no, there's no brick or concrete. It's just walls that are built with stones. Right. And it, 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 it is of skill in its own right. And it looks beautiful, you know. And um, there is ancient buildings in the area. There is some ancient stone circles as well. So I'm biased because I'm from this part of the world. It's a beautiful part of the country. So this is Moreland. Think, think, think of Hound of the Baskervilles. That was down south. That was down in Devon and Cornwall way. But uh, very similar in, in, uh, in, in description. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I, you know, the audience might have known, but I figure if I don't know, it's a reasonable chance. It's there's a reasonable chance that other people don't and have just sort of had a, an impression. I had a misimpression. I thought it was sort of a place where there was always like you know fog and might be a little swampy or or you know something like that. You know, but but no, it just sounds like it's just like 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 you said, semi pastoral, not quite forest. Sort of the borderland between the, the, the two. So uh, maybe uh, you think of like where uh, people go fox hunting or something. I don't know. Um, or pheasant hunting. Anyway. Um, no more fox hunting. That's banned. Not, not allowed anymore. <laughs> good, good. I like foxes. Um, anyway. So uh, we, we have... Um, so your area had a high level, or at least it felt like a high level, a high number, high frequency. And so your group got involved. And I guess it grew from there, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I remember going across the, uh, the moors to speak to a gentleman who had a business there. He ran his own cattery. So if you were going away on holiday, and you had a pet cat, you could leave it with him for a week or a fortnight, you know. Right. And I remember speaking to him, he said, um, I have a routine every night, last thing before I go to bed, I go out, I check this, I check that, I do the same routine every night. And he says, when I check it, as I turn around, there's my house in front of me. And the, and the hills that the, the house is perched on just falls away down behind the house. And he said, Philip, there are five huge orange balls behind my house. It's like the size of a dinner plate. Wow. And this, these are his exact words. He said they were doing aerial acrobatics while I'm watching them. So we have five harvest moons when there's not a harvest moon and they're moving. Yeah. Absolutely. And he said, I have, you know, he lived there quite a number of years. He said, I've never, ever seen anything like it in my life. So this, this, said, this there's no chance this was like the torrid meteor shower or anything like that. This, this, this was, know, this was synchronized. Absolutely. I mean, I, we, we've actually been out on the hills uh, when there's been a meteor shower because it's, it's, you know, we've got a good sighting. It's, there's no light pollution. We, we did that on purpose. And he said, these were in your face. You know, there weren't little lights miles in the distance. They were like big dinner plates behind behind his house. Right. You know? and, and that was kind of reminiscent with a lot of things that was reported to us, Jeff. Um, so what we did one year, I think it was maybe 84 or 85, can't remember the year, we placed a caravan on top of Carlton Moor, just outside of Skipton, and we manned it 24 hours a day for seven days a week. We did a couple of little sky watches, but mainly we did some local publicity. 
and ask people to come out and report their sightings to us. And we even put some signposts, you know, pointing the way up either side of the moor so people knew where we were. And they did. People came. You know, they had to come out of the way to report this. And we found that whatever this phenomenon was, it wasn't something that just happened then. It went back decades because some of the farmers in the region, you know, they they lived there and their father lived there and their grandfather and so on. And um, But then, like we mentioned, others mentioned other things, you know, what we'd probably class as paranormal events uh, in the area as well. So it was only quite by accident that we started then to ask questions when we went to interview people. We take the details down of the site and we'll say, you know, you ever see anything else? Anything else happen? And they tell, or they might even tell us a local folklore story. Uh, one of our uh, our members uh, one of, uh, was a police sergeant in the area, and um, he told us a couple of things. This is one night, him and his colleague, they got called out to a house that had had a, a burglary reported. So when they get there, there's a couple. He said, they've been out for the evening, they've been out for dinner somewhere. So this police sergeant said, well, what's been stolen? And he's, they said nothing. So he looks at his partner and thinks, what, you know, what's, well, what have you phoned us for if nothing's been stolen? He said, well, somebody's been in the house. What do you mean? And he showed him a lot of their ornaments and their pictures on the wall have been turned upside down. Hmm. And just left. There was no damage. You know, there was no sign of any forced entry, no windows open, no doors broken. The, the police sergeant said, I don't know what you want me to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and then on another occasion, he said, we got called out to a fire. There's a fire reported in a house. And he said, we actually got there before the fire department. And he says, our training tells us that if you're there before the fire department, if you can make entry, you do. Sure. So he said, you kick the door in and you actually go down on, on your hands and knees on all fours because the heat rises. Right. And he said, I, he said, I, he said, it wasn't, you know, we could see the flames through the, the window, but it wasn't, a, you know, an inferno. So he said, I, I walk, I, you know, I go down on all fours, enters the building. And he said, I look through the door and there's a man lying on the living room floor and he has a flame coming out of his torso. There's nothing else on fire, just this flame coming out of this gentleman's torso. And this chap said, I wondered if you would class that as spontaneous human combustion. That's what it sounds you know, like. He said it was bizarre. He said it's the most bizarre thing he'd, he'd ever seen as a police officer. Yeah, and I, then he, he I, came back out because the fire fire department turned up. He said, but he, so with all the, we started to uncover these things, Jeff, as we asked more questions. Well, I, I mean, I have just, I just saw John Carpenter's Vampires recently for, for the, about the millionth time, but probably for the first time in 25 years. And that sort of like, sounds like when the vampires were put into the sun, it, it's like their bodies burst into flames from the, you know, from the torso often. Uh, so, I mean, it, was this a human being who was injured? Was this, is, was this, uh, he was dead. Dead. He was dead. Okay. So the, so well, what do you think it was like removing evidence or, or are we not speculating at all? No, no, he's just said, you know, this, this, as he's on all fours, the fire department arrived, so he backed off. Right. And they just got a, they had to make a report, they just got a report that the, the gentleman was deceased. You know, he's, de 
DOA did on arrival. So the only um, fire was a human being on fire f from the, like the center of his torso, which it was is, just a flame coming out of his torso out, out of here. But there was no um, like alcohol or gasoline or accelerant in no, the body to have. No. Okay, well that is uh, that, that that's bizarre. Um, you are you close at all to Rendlesham, or or did you investigate the, the that at all? No, I mean, it's, it's it's nowhere near here. It's a long way from here. That's in the county of Suffolk. Uh, which is a long, long way from my life. I, I mean, I've looked at Rendlesham and I've, I've met some of the people involved and I've interviewed some of them, but it's not, not my area of speciality, I, I, uh, I, I, I should say. I mean, somebody asked me, write the book, UFO Landings UK, why didn't you, you know, put Rendlesham in it? Because it's not in the book. Mm -hmm. I said, well, Rendlesham's a big story, you know, but there are lots and lots of witnesses to it. Uh, whole books have been dedicated yeah. to that one case. In fact, I published one. Um, so, you know, I couldn't do it justice in, in, in just a small in, small section in the book. But everybody knows about it right. anyway, Jeff, so I decided to, to, to leave it to one side. Right. It's like me with my shows that uh, every episode I don't want to talk about the Anunnaki, and every episode I end up talking about the Anunnaki. Um, so, anyway, uh, yeah, I get it. You, if you can't really well, add it's any... You, it's funny you should mention that. I did work for a bank. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, it's it's just an ongoing. Like I said, I I worked most of my life in industry, but then I took ill mm -hmm. and I had to come out of industry. And I ended up working for for a bank. I had to get a desk job, and I got one of not in a bank itself, but I worked for a, for a bank in one of their big contact centres. So it's a kind of a running joke. Yeah, yeah, I worked for a bank. Okay, don't hold that against me, please. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the the, the Anunnaki with the bank. I got it. Okay, so we're not going to get full into Anki and Liara. Good. No. And the audience also sigh, probably sighs relief as well. Um, because uh, yeah, I'm going to stop because I'll start rambling about it. Um, I want to skip to a little bit. I, you know, obviously, you introduced me to Tom Carey and some other uh, American researchers. I wonder what you think of some of the researchers going on. You know, it's been the last probably couple decades with MUFON and uh, and and Bigelow with Bass and uh, Louis Elizondo and Jeremy Corvin and Joe Mergia and there and. Sometimes they seem like the George Knapp. It's, sometimes it seems like those folks are working together. Sometimes it seems like they're working against each other. Uh, you know, uh, you know, UFOlogy got very popular very recently, and I and I and I guess with success comes fissures. You know, allies become enemies. It's sort of like the natural way of things. But do you deal at all with any of those folks? What you know? Do you, have you? Do you work with Mufon? Do you work with? Uh, I, I, used, I was actually the Mufon representative for England back in the nineteen nineties. Okay, good. Um, I was also the director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association, okay. which was a national organisation. And um, when I was with Mufon, um, Walter Andrus was the, the, the their international director, and I met. I met Walt uh, in London uh, at one of the uh, events. We, we I was conference organizer as well, uh, and he invited me to to be the you know the rep for for, for England, and I was. And uh, you know, there's always you know to in and fro in and arguments with any UFO group. All groups. Uh, it, yeah, it, it's just the. I mean, I I don't think it's just UFO groups. Oh, I can tell you, it's, it's not. It's with anything. I think if I think if you run a stamp collecting group, it'd fall out. You know, mm -hmm. um, so it, that's just human nature. 
So when I finally, I, I, I came out of the bull farm because I'd started a family and something had to give, I, you know, uh, and then eventually I, I gave up my position at Pewfora as well. And I just did my own thing. And um, not that long ago, a few years back, Mufon asked me if I'd, if I'd rejoin. And I said, with the greatest respect, no. Because not that I, I thought there was anything wrong with them, but if you join with a, a, an organization, you, you have to stick to their rules and regulations. And, you know, I, I didn't want to get tied up with any of that. I do what I want to do. I work with whom I want. I, I, I formed Flying Dispress in 2015, so I'll publish what I want, you know, with whom I want. And, and I found that, you know, more beneficial, to, to, to be honest. And I know, Joe, I know some of the people you, you, you mentioned, um, uh, some of them I, I've, I've met and spoken to, or if not, I've spoken to them on the phone. But, um, you know, with popularity come problems as well. That's yeah, right. It's just the way it is. Um, so what what I say to people, Jeff, is just reach your own conclusions. You know that it's, today it's, it's never been easier to to have this information at your fingertips. You no. know it really hasn't, and you can obtain it at your leisure I want, and, and decide for yourselves. I want to. I want your help in reminding me towards the and or a little bit later to talk about how one goes from being a researcher to actually being a publisher. That's more Garden of Views than Garden of Doom uh, because it's got the, the, you know, but the, I'm sure there's a story there. But I mean, I can't have one of the premier experts in ufology and a, an actual publisher on the, you know, on the hook here and not ask you about the disclosures of the last year or so with, I mean, all of the navies and air forces coming forward, you know, uh, Congress, you know, here in the U.S. authorizing task force, the the, the White House, uh, you know, acknowledging things. I mean, the, the Tic Tac photos from the, the, the Nimitz, some are old, some are new. What, what do you think, what do you think the change is? What do you think is going on? What do you think those Tic Tacs well, are? Yeah, well, let, let's start with the positive, shall we? Yes. You know, it it, it, it's, it has brought the UFO subject back into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And the media, by, not all, by no means all of them, you'll never have all of them, but the media in general attacking is starting to have started to take a more serious, um, objective look at the phenomena, pretty much like they did in the mid-1990s when Dr. John Mack stepped, stepped out of the shadows. A Harvard professor saying that we should be looking at alien abductions, that there's something going on here. And there was, a, there was a shift then. But of course, there was no internet then, you know, or no, you know, you know, but today we have all that. So let's look upon it on the positive side. You see more articles now of a serious nature than you do with, you know, Mickey taking and making fun of the subject, which can only be a good thing. On the other hand, it builds up people's hopes and dreams. There are those that have made claims that disclosure is going to happen now mm -hmm. or next week. Or, and they always say it's that, that when I first joined ufology, or got involved, I should say, there's a, a very well-known author here in the UK. I'm not going to mention any names. He, he was adamant that they, the government, were going to spill the beans anytime soon. It's coming. And then, of course, nothing happened. 
you know and then of course you move on in time we used to have a thing called operation right to know mm -hmm. and then you'd stand outside the white house with banners and they were adamant that, you know this this same mysterious then were going to tell us now they call it disclosure and people's hopes and desires have, have you know gone up again in all likelihood, if, if you think disclosure is coming, you have to believe in the first instance that they, the powers that be, have something to disclose. But how do we know that? When it comes to the, the various Navy videos, the Tic Tac, mm. the Go Fast, the Gimbal, the Flirt, whatever you want to call them, they are interesting. But let's be also honest about them. These were filmed by Top Gun Navy pilots, Aircraft costing between 100 and 150 million dollars each, you only end up with is a fuzzy blob on the screen. Let's, be, let's face it, Jeff, that's all we've got. Mm, pretty much. You know? And when, you, when it comes to military technology, we know for a fact that from smart bombs and missiles, you can see the enemy. We've seen it, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq. You can see the people walking in the street before the before the missile hits. But when it comes to UFOs, we've got three fuzzy blobs. However, they have released it. Well, they have released them. So let's be grateful for that. And, and we'll probably argue about these three videos ad infinitum. I see it every day, you know, on social media. Um, because they're not clear, you know. It is as simple as that. And yes, Congress have had hearings. Again, let's look at the positives. Better than not having any hearings. Whether anything will come of it, we shall we shall see. Um, you know, we'll just have to be patient. But let's think, let's remain positive. The only thing I picked up when they had the hearings, I watched it live. Um, there was all this thing about defence. Some people have said, is this another way for the defence community to increase its budget? Because they, at the end of it, they said, we can't rule out these being Chinese or, or, or Russian. Right. So is it a backdoor attempt to get some more money for the for the budget? And then, of course, we've got the war in Ukraine with, with the Soviet Union. So it's probably a good time. If, if, you're, if you're in the military industrial complex in the, in the US, it's probably a good time to be going to the government saying we need some more money. And, True, um, but it's, it, but the, I mean, it hasn't been a bad time to be in the military-industrial complex since the 30s, really, so, I mean... No, no, there's, there's, there's good times and better times, you know. Yes. You know, America's probably been at war with somebody for as long as I can remember, you know. Well, you started it. <laughs> yeah, we started it. But no, I'm just saying, is it is it a backdoor way of getting some more money? You, you know what... Sure. Whatever department you have within within your government, right? For the, for the government, what, what's a billion or two more? But but if you're a private business, what's a billion or two more? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then we have controversy. So this is the this is the downside of it. We have people like Mr. Elizondo mm -hmm. claiming to have run this, that, and the other without any proof that he did so. Um, the Department of Defense to these days say no, he didn't. You know, and then you have Bigelow's involvement and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that then muddies the water. It does. Uh, and then Elizondo is an interesting case because, yeah, people can't verify what he did. And, his, and I guess his response is basically, well, of course they can. It was top, top secret. 
Well, then why should we believe you? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, yeah. So what? So I, I guess what you're saying is, in your mind, your own jury is out on what those Tic Tacs are. You're not convinced that they're anything extraterrestrial or even anything real. They might just be fabricated videos to increase a defense budget, or they might be something military, our own military that we know about, or... Yeah, I, I don't think they're fabricated. I, I just think that the jury is out because they're, you know, they're inconclusive. They are fascinating in their own right, don't get me wrong, but they're, they're not unique. I mean, if we go back to, I believe it was 1990, in 1890, there'd been a, a string of sightings of triangular-shaped things over Belgium. Yeah, I remember. And, of course, the Belgian Air Force captured them on board. I think it was an F-16 radar. But unlike, <clears throat> unlike any, anywhere else, they released it. They had a you know, press conference. There was the general stood there and showed it, you know. And so, so you know, the, 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 it does have its predecessors. And we've got military sightings on record as well, without video, you know, from, from around the world, different parts of the world. And uh, so, you know, military sightings from from top echelons of the military, you know, as well, not not some little nobody from nowhere. Um, and we have, you know, I've spoken to them. I, I spoke to a, you know, a, a squadron leader here who, who's, who's top security, whose classification was so top but when this the, the US spy plane came into land, he was notified about it. He used to come into the UK to refuel. I mean, that's the most secret aircraft on the planet at the time. And he was head of, of, of military uh, uh, radar, and he tracked six targets over mainland Britain. And he said, Philip, I can tell you what these things were not. And he said, I'll give you a list if you like, but what they were, I have no idea. You know, and he, he informed his superiors at, at the MOD and so on. Um, so we've, we've got this type of testimony already on file. Um, but we'll see where this leads. We'll, we'll see where it leads. My, my, you know, it, it changes, it's changed recently, hasn't it? They've now given it a different name. You know, it's got another acronym. It's going to yeah. widen, you know. Do you, think, um, do you think there's anything to, I mean, unidentified flying object versus unidentified aerial phenomena? I mean, what is, some people are acting like it's a big deal that the acronym was changed. I don't really see what the big deal is, but I mean, some people are saying, well, you know, aerial phenomena, they're, they're going to tell you it's weather or climate change is causing strange lightning patterns or, you know, yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah, is, is yeah. that, it's well, that. We have to remember. It was the United States Air Force who invented the phrase UFO because it, before that it was called flying saucers. Right, the Foo Fighters, to, right? To, yeah, they wanted to give it a more serious name, so they, they used the term UFO. So we've just got the modern day version of that. And um, But UA, the phrase, the UAP has been around for a long time. The British Ministry of Defence, for example, um, did a one-off report, study, and it was written by Dr. Uh, Ron Haddow, and it was it was classified at the time. And throughout that, it talks about UAPs. And when it was published, it was only published internally within the Ministry of Defence. It wasn't made public until some years later, Dr. David Clark from the UK had it released under the Freedom of Information Act. So the term was already in use a long time ago, but not but it wasn't in the mainstream. So all they've done is just use what is already there to, the, to their own benefits, Jeff. 
I want what a, those benefits may be, we'll see. I want to quick, quick fire a couple things on you, and because I don't know which are you consider to be valid, which you consider to be invalid. So you know, so some of them, you know, first of all, I, I you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Skinwalker Ranch. Do you, what do you think about the 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 reports of UFO activity at Skinwalker Ranch? Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, I know from my own um, research that there are small geographical areas that, for whatever reason, Jeff, like like I, like I mentioned earlier, Carlton Moor, outside of Skipton, it's, there's nothing there. It's just it's just heather with a few little businesses scattered around it. But in that area, what all kinds of things were reported. So I don't see why Skinwalker Ranch should be we should be sceptical about it. I think there's been a lot of hype because there's television involved and things like that. You know, we know how TV works. But I don't think it's unreasonable to acknowledge that there are small, relatively small geographical areas that for whatever reason have a large um, sprinkling of paranormal phenomena reported there. You know, there's a place called Hestalen in central Norway. It's very similar. It's just three mountains is, is Hestal, and I've been there. I, w- I made the mistake of going in the winter. It was about <laughs> minus 10, you know, 10 foot of snow. Um, but there's nobody lives there, Jeff. There's about 200 people in the whole area. There's only, there's only, I think, five or six million in the whole of Norway, you know, so there is nobody there. So there are other geographical areas that, for whatever reason, have a high intensity of strange phenomena. In, in, in Russia, for, for example, they call them the M zones. M for mystery, I presume. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Skinwalker is one. It's just one that's got a lot of publicity and a lot of hype and a lot of TV. I think if you take all that away, you get to the core phenomena. I, I, you know, I don't see why not. What about the Phoenix lights, which sound a little bit like the, and, and looked a little bit like the, the Belgian lights? No, no, absolutely nothing like them. The Phoenix lights were flares and military aircraft. Gotcha. End of story. Okay. Yeah, I'm finished with. I have a case that I personally investigated, you know, from the UK, from a, 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 just outside of the city of Hull on, on, in East Yorkshire, which is about 40 miles from here. And I was actually live on air on BBC radio when this event was taking place. And, and it was a huge V formation going out over the North Sea and people were phoning in they're reporting it and I found out the local Air Force base was contacted it's no longer there now it's closed but it was there at the time I think we're going back to again 84 somewhere around there 1984 and this is nothing to do with us they didn't mean nothing to do with us Royal Air Force they meant nothing to do with our air base right. you know um, but what it was and it didn't take long to find out it was two tanker aircraft with seven jets uh-huh. behind each one and they go out over the North Sea just in case there's any accidents and there's fuel spillage it doesn't fall on a, a population goes into the sea and I, well, I, it's just fortunate we had a, a, a guy in Hull was a UFO investigator He'd recently only just started, so I went over to help him. And I'd already got the documentation about what we're actually looking at. One chap said, this V formation 
landed in my field. I'm a farmer. It landed in the field. Well, there's no way that 16 military aircraft can land in a farmer's field. Right. You know, and, and the Phoenix lights, the only difference between that and the Phoenix lights is some people took photographs or video film, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, then it got hyped up by the television and so on. Um, people will disagree with me and I have no, I'm, I, you know, I, I have no objection to that. Uh, but if they'd like to see the case I investigated in Hull that shows you this, I have it all documented and I'd gladly share that with them. Okay. Um, all right. The big one, Area 51 in Roswell. Well, Area 51, you know, what can I say? I don't know. None of us, <laughs> none of us know much about it. It, it is still, the, the, I would say, probably the, the most top secret location, military location on, on the planet, certainly in the United States. And, um, and that's it. You know, I don't believe a word of Bob Lazar. Um, he said all his documents were, you know, were destroyed by the powers that be. But okay, let's assume they were. But if if, if I really wanted to in, investigate you, Jeff, could I not go back to your high school? You could speak to your classmates. Do you remember speak to some of your teachers? If you went to college or university, well, you know, what class did you take? Well, I took physics. Well, okay, I'll go and speak to the physics professor. Or some of the students who were in the same. There is nobody remembers it. And I, funny you should mention that. I'd read an article today about Bob Lazar, that, but it was published a couple of years back when Jeremy Corbell made his documentary about him. Actually, during the making of it, Bob Lazar now he runs his own business now, dealing with, you know, I don't know, chemicals and, and compounds and all things that he supplies them. All legal, mm-hmm. you know. They were raided by the local police and the, and the feds. So he said, oh, it's because Bob, you know, had stolen a piece of this mysterious element 115 that he claimed powers the flying right. saucers. And they were trying to, what, what it all turned out. Um, and you can view the police files on this that being accessed. They actually, it was part of a murder investigation. They weren't accusing, Bob wasn't a suspect, Bob Bill. But somebody had been murdered by a, a compound uh, uh, called thallium, and it's you know it's it's radioactive. Right, I've heard of thallium. And of course, on Bob Lazar's website, he was selling thallium for somebody else. Somebody had you know. Yeah, so, so, so that's, they want to so know if anyone bought it to see if they could investigate exactly. them possibly. Yeah, but you don't see the filmmakers telling you that. No, it was the feds that were you know. This is a long-running thing that the feds have done to Bob Lazar because he was a whistleblower and all this lot, you know. So I don't, I, I, I you know, I tried to speak to Bob Lazar when he first raised his head in, in back in the 80s, but I, he set up a business then and I managed to get through to the business and spoke to his partner, but I, I didn't get hold of, of, of Bob. But, um, you know, it's a fantastic story, but that's all it is, I'm, I'm afraid. Okay. And uh, there you go. How about Antarctica? It's cold. Okay. <laughs> no, nothing more. That's why the quick fire is fine. Okay. Uh, and I have a friend, hi, Jimmy, who's in Melbourne, Australia, and he talks about that there's a, a, a U.S.-Australian uh, joint base there, and there's a lot of activity down in that part of uh, the world. Is there anything to that? Well, again, you know, Australia has its own 
folklore about these strange places. In Australia, these strange lights, the ones like the ones I described on Carlton Moor, they're actually called the Min Min Lights in Australia. So they've got their own folklore about this phenomenon as well. Um, but military base has been busy. You know, let's be honest, Jeff, most of us have no idea when we're looking at military aircraft and their light configurations and their movements. We have no idea what they look like. You know, and, and there are times when they do exercises for a whole range of things that we, you know, so we're not informed of them because it, it, it's, it's the correct thing to do. It's like somebody say, oh, it's, they're keeping secrets. Well, it is the duty of all our governments to keep secrets. Yes. Part and parcel of what they do. Sure. doesn't necessarily mean what they're holding is anything interesting. It's more on the way they collect that information rather than the information itself. I'll give you an example. Sure. A friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, he used to work in a textile mill. He made cloth. And he was a foreman in the textile mill. And he said, Philip, I've signed the Official Secrets Act. It's what we sign here in the UK. I said, I won't, I won't repeat the exact words I said, but I said, go away. You work in a textile mill. Why have you signed the Official Secrets Act? He said, well, some of the cloth that we make is used for military dress uniforms. And I said, well, is there anything super secret about this cloth. He says, no, we use it for other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but because he's supplied to the military, he had to sign the Official Secrets Act. Our Official Secrets Act, I, think, I believe, was instigated during the First World War. Ah. So, it's, you know, it's over 100 years old. It's completely out of date, but it, it's, it's not been updated. It's still there. And you have the same kind of thing in different in your country, in Australia, and in different parts of the world. Oh, they're keeping that secret. Well, yes, they do, but it doesn't, just because they keep it secret, don't mean they've got an alien in the fridge. Right. There, there's some remote reason why somebody thinks the secret needs to be kept, and it's probably a valid reason, and it's probably very unlikely, and it probably has nothing, it's, probably nothing to do with anything preternatural. It's probably more like they don't want someone to get into the cloth factory and, and put topical poisons in, in you know, Whatever. in colonel's yeah. uniforms or something. Okay, got it. Um, oh, I, uh, I, I think uh, I've probably lost my own train of thought with uh, other quick fires, which is probably best uh, anyway. So what, is, you know, obviously you've published, I mean, I, I know for sure at least a dozen books, probably, probably dozens. Uh, how did you, you know, how did you go from being an independent investigator to a publisher as well? And how do you find the authors and how do you decide what to publish? And I know there's a bunch of questions here, but those are probably shorter ones. Oh, no, no, but, no, that's fine. I mean, I've published over 30 books now um, from, from many different parts of the world. Uh, Poland, Romania, Japan, Brazil, Italy, you know, you know, as well as the US and the UK. And... It all, you know, I, down the years, Jeff, I've done all kinds of things. I've been a, a conference organizer, so I've brought people in from overseas. Um, I was an avid researcher, so I would pester people around the world. Um, I was also magazine editor, so again, I used to have writers from different parts of the world. So I got to know, down the 40 plus years, I got to know a lot of people. And in 2015, a colleague of mine called Peter, in Poland, says Philip, I want to send you something. He said, my my spoken English is pretty good, but I'm trying to practice my written English. 
will you have a look at it for me and give me some feedback? So I said, sure. So what he sent me was a manuscript. You know, Peter was a, a Polish UFO researcher and um, I read it and it's, i got to be honest, his, his written English was pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what a hell of a book. <laughs> there was only, I think, one case in this whole book that I'd actually heard of before, simply because it had never been published in English. So I sat on it for a while, I, I gave him his feedback, and then I have, a, I have a colleague here called John Hansen. John's a, a retired police detective. He runs his own publishing venture called Haunted Skies. Highly recommend it. And he said, well, why don't you publish it? So this is 2015, so we're talking seven years ago. And I said, well, actually, John, I was thinking about that, but not until I retired. At that point, you know, I'm, I'm 57. So I've still got nine years left to go until I, I reach retirement age. But John gave me, uh, you know, some enthusiasm and he poked me and prodded me. So I said, okay. And I, I set up Flying Dispress. John showed me the ropes of how to go about it. It was a steep learning curve, and I'm still learning, Jeff. I still make mistakes. But I published UFOs Over Poland by a chap called Peter Cielabias. And it sold pretty well. We were all stunned. So I thought, well, I'm up and running now. Yeah. So slowly but surely, I published some more books. And then in, in um, 2018, I got the chance to take early retirement. Came out of the blue, you know. So I took it. You know, and I, I threw everything into flying distress. I took retirement. I mean, one day I'm working and the next day I'm not, you yeah. know. So I've got to find something before the wife kills me anyway. You know? <laughs> so I, I set up flying distress. Um, very fortunate that that same year, um, the first book I published by US uh, abductee Calvin Parker, the Pascagoula case. Mm -hmm. We published his story in full for the first time, became an Amazon bestseller. I mean, we were, we were stumped. You know, we, we, we never thought that would happen. So we got the ball rolling. How, I, how do I choose which books to know? I wish I knew what the formula was. I wish I could make every book an Amazon bestseller. We had another one um, by James Hudson. It's called The Meadow Project. And James's study is in an area in the southern states not a, not too dissimilar to Skinwalker. Yeah, he was he was on the show. He, he yeah. goes by Trey, but yeah. Yeah. So and that became a, a, an Amazon bestseller. Mm -hmm. None of us again ever expected it. I've published other books, James, that I thought this will not sell, but I think it deserves to to be in print, I, irrespective. You know that may be because it's a first time author. And I remember back in 1994 when I, I, I published my first book with a, you know, a high speed publisher, what it was like to get that done. So I've tried to give them, you know, a helping hand like you had MG, uh, MG Stevens uh, on, on first time writing. It's a little, she's like a little booklet mainly is her book, but I'm hoping that may lead to other things for her. And, and I'll publish things just because I think, well, I find it interesting. Maybe somebody else will. There's no guarantee of that. And um, I've got more books coming out as we speak, and I'm lining up more books for next year. I have no idea whether these will be financially successful or not. And, and several of the people next year will be first-time authors. Um, so what we've also done, we've broadened our horizons. We now have Flying Dish France. So 
Some of our books get published in French. I have a colleague in France who runs that. He's a professional translator. We have Flanders Press Latin America, based in Argentina. So some of our books have been published in, in uh, Spanish. And up until the pandemic, we'd also done provisional deals with publishers in Russia, uh, Italy, uh, and Germany. Oh, but right. they've been hit by the pandemic, so they those have either bit the dust or will happen, you know, at some point in the future. And and on we go. As simple as that. What are three UFO related events that we should know about that maybe we don't or that you think are the ones that should be taken most seriously? And then if they're not the same, what are three UFO related events that, that you would like investigated and a book written about that you could publish from parts of the world that maybe we wouldn't normally associate with UFO events? Well, when I, when I decided to look into the Pascagoula case, the way it came about, uh, it involved two men, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker. Charles Hickson was deceased, uh, but he published a book with William Mendes back in 1983 called UFO Contact Pascagoula. It didn't sell many, therefore if you found a second-hand copy, it costs you an arm and a leg. So I got the rights to republish it. And I thought, I'll f see if I can find the other guy, Calvin Parker. Mm -hmm. And I did, quite by chance. But when I first started looking into it, um, Jeff, there were UFO investigators in Mississippi. This is where it happened. I'd never heard of the case. So it was literally dead and gone. So once we got the story out, you will be amazed at the information that we've managed to uncover, including yeah. first-hand eyewitnesses to it, documents, photographs, you name it. All that will be revealed next year. It's the 50th anniversary. I've worked with an academic in the States called Dr. Irina Scott. Right. She was on the show also. You, you sent her over. Yeah. You had a great interview with and, her. Yeah. And we are doing documentary series to coincide with it. That starts filming in September. I would advise anyone and everyone to look into that case. It is Fascinating. Um, as for others, you know, have a look around. Um, perhaps look at some of the material we've published from countries that you don't suspect have anything to do with UFO, like Poland, like Romania. If you like extreme high strangeness cases, mm -hmm. then look at things from South America, especially Brazil. That's why I published a book on Brazilian cases, because they are very bizarre. Very high strain, just nonetheless fascinating. Oh, can you send me that author? Uh, yes, I will. Thank you. I have difficulty pronouncing his name, but his first name's Tiago. I'll try and pronounce his second name. It's Ticetti. It's all right. I don't know if that's how it in Brazil, but it's, it's Tiago Ticetti. But I'll put, I'll, put, I'll put Tiago in touch with it. Yeah. Tiago, hopefully, will be writing another book for me next year. Oh, perfect. Time, Good, so you can time, talk about both. That's fine. Time, He's a busy guy. So look at things like that. You know, what cases would I like covering? Ones that nobody's ever heard about. Yeah, exactly. Like a, do, have, Africa have or something. Your, well, there's, there's a young man from the States. It's called Jesse Peak. He's part of MoveFun. He runs his own podcast as Jesse. But he's been doing his own research and investigations. And he contacted me about how do I go about writing a book for him? So I said, this is the way. Just a few simple pointers. I said, you don't have to publish it with me. This, you know, I'll, I'll 
gladly give this information free of charge to anyone. But he decided he wanted to publish with me. I said, that's great. But a lot of what, if not all of what he's got, has never been seen before. Or he may have written the odd article here and there, but which has been seen by a few hundred, a few thousand. But in general, you've never heard it. So that's the kind of info. If you're going to a publisher, or you're going to self-publish, it's better if it's something that nobody has seen or heard of before. Or they may have seen a little bit about it, but then you've gone and dug, like we dug into the Pasagula case, and we found out a whole mountain of new material. You know, I, we just, even Calvin Parker could not believe what we We were turning up on a, on a weekly basis at one point. You know, it, it staggered us all. So that's, that's, that's what I would be looking for, you know, and, and that, that would be my advice to anyone. Um, you know, and go for it. There's there's nothing to there's nothing to stop you, you know. What I what I've still got them in my file. I have a filing cabinet, in the chair, an old fashioned filing cabinet. In there is a file with all the rejection letters I got back in the early 1990s from publishers mm -hmm. when I was trying to write my first book. I'll say no, thank you. So I've kept them, you know. But we don't have to do that now. Yes, we still have your high street publishers in your bookstores and what have you. But now we have digital technology, which enables people like me to run a small business, or people like you, or anyone else who's listening, to do it themselves. The only difference is, is them promoting it. You know, anyone can, any one of us can write a book now and publish it. But then, how do you let people know it's out there? That's, that's the difficult part of, of the process, is the promotion. Are there any... Hence, oh, hence I'm on here tonight, Jeff, telling you all, your listeners about UFO landings UK, you've got you've got to let people know it's available. That's exactly right, and we're gonna and we're gonna get right back to that pretty soon. Um, are there any high? I'll call them high strangeness events that you're aware of it, that you would like you know a, an author to come to you with and say, "I'm researching this, I'm writing this book," and you're like, "Yeah, I was really hoping somebody would come to me with that." There's not not one that I'm, I'm aware of. Um, like I said, with Calvin's case in Pascagoula, I knew that I got a whole book about the case, which was Charlie's, Charlie Hickson's. But it was all the other stuff that, that, that once Calvin went public, others started to come out of the woodwork. Because uh, back in 1973, when this incident happened, they were made a fool of, mm -hmm. you know, by the media. Today, as we spoke about earlier, that attitude has kind of changed. That's right. So now, now they saw Calvin being treated with respect. Plus, they'd also now age. They've come of an age where they really didn't give a monkeys, you know. Right. They're going to be, you know. So it encouraged them to come forward. And there will be incidents, you know, that you, you look at it like I published a book not long ago by Kevin Randall about an incident. I think it's 1954 or 56 at Leveland, Texas. Right. All I'd read about Leveland, Texas, was a small article about it. But Kevin's kept digging and digging and digging and digging. And I found a whole host of new information that nobody knew was around. And hey, presto, you know, we end up with a book full of new information about what we thought was a, a small case. So there's nothing to stop anyone doing that if, if, if as long as they've got the patience and the determination. 
Ah, well, folks, you've heard it here. If you've got a, a real case and you and you think you're a decent writer, uh, you have at least someone who's going to give you an ear. Let's get back to UFOs in the UK, your book, your specialty, your passion. And obviously, without giving out too much, give us like your you know, top, top three to five, you know, sort of teasers or trailers. Like if you were doing a movie trailer for your book, which which things need to be in that trailer to say, hey, I got to read this book? Well, one of, one of the things when I was writing the book, because bearing in mind I've been collecting this material for a, for a long time, it kind of refreshed my memory about some of the cases I actually had on file. And there's a number of them, um, Jeff, but there's one, and I don't know what why it is, um, but it, it happened in 1975, in July 1975, uh, in a place in Wales, and I can't pronounce the name of it, but I'll try, it's Macalent. If anybody's from Wales, they're probably laughing now. Welsh is a very strange language, <laughs> Jeff. But basically, he had a young, a young fellow, we call him Trevor, and he went down to the beach one day with his, with his father, you know, and behind them was some rocks, and he said, you know, Dad, can I go play in the rocks? Yeah, sure. So his dad sits on the beach, you can see him. Trevor goes up the rocks. And what does he see when he reaches the top? There is this thing sat on the ground, it's round, it's got lights around it, it's got a dome, but inside it, there are two, two figures, I'll say, outlined, but they're like, they're like liquid lava. All the in, internal structure of these figures is moving and squirming, and at one point, the dome starts to open. So Trevor runs like a lunatic down to the beach to his father, says, Dad, 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 there's a flying saucer up here. <laughs> and he turns and runs again. And his father thinks, what's the damn fault talking about, you know? And he can he looks up and he can see him. And he sees Trevor hiding behind a rock. And he keeps popping his head up like that. And tre what Trevor is actually doing, he's hiding from this thing. And other than he's gone, you know? And it's the very bizarre nature of it, um, Jeff, that kind of sticks in my mind. I mean, there aren't, there aren't extra witnesses. There's nothing left on the ground. There's no photographs. It's just the bizarre nature of it. You know, you will not find this type of thing reported on science fiction films of the time, certainly not in TV documentaries. This was 1975. You know, it's not, we have a famous uh, science fiction TV series here called Doctor Who. Yes, of course. You know, Doctor Who's aliens in those days were many in, in, in outfits. There were always humanoid many outfits, you know, because apart from the Daleks, of course. But um, they just had men inside them. <laughs> so it's the bizarre nature of it, and it's just one that always stuck in my mind. And I would say to your to your listeners, how many have ever heard of that case? I wouldn't suspect there'll be many. Um, and you know the full details are in my book, along with the drawing of it, you know, an artist's impression. And that's just one of many of the bizarre cases. I use the I don't use the word bizarre. I use high strangeness. Right. Because I take that from the late Alan Hynek. Right. Uh, and all these cases have varying various degrees of high strangeness to it, one way or the other. I'll allow you as the reader to, to reach your own conclusions. At the end of the book, I asked a number of my colleagues, all here in the UK, no Americans, you know, no Europeans, all UK researchers, 
what do you think about this phenomenon? And they all give their various opinions. So you've got you've got a wide variety of different opinions. But but nonetheless, there's the information. Draw your own conclusion. Yeah, we're gonna play a little game and it's a little game. It's gonna and it's just called relationship, no relationship. Uh, of things that people often associate with UFOs, whether you think it, there is a relationship or not, you, or you can call it fact fiction, you can call it BS or not BS, whatever terminology you want, as long as it's pretty clear. Crop circles. Uh, man-made. Okay. Uh, cow mutilations. Uh, I've no interest whatsoever. Okay, good. Me either. I, I, I have no reason. To, I have no idea why an, uh, why an alien would be interested in mutilating a cow. Um, no. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, pyramids and other uh, ancient structures. And no involvement whatsoever. Okay. Ley lines. Uh, don't exist. Okay. We're going through these really quick. Uh, <laughs> Air Force bases. Yes. Okay. But perhaps, perhaps government uh, experimental vehicles rather than UFOs. Okay. All right. Now, this isn't quite relationship, not relationship, but it's it's good. Do you, Greys, uh, do you think that they are the, the, if at all, or, and if so, are they the short ones or the tall ones? Because I, I hear stories probably equally on both. Uh, so I guess uh, yes or no, they exist. And, and if so, they're one or the other, or there's both. Good question. But I would say, which came first? Um, we often refer to the Greys as originating with Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah. You know, that encounter happened in 1961, of course. However, if you look at the original documentation and statements made by Betty and Barney Hill, what they saw were not the little Grey guys. They were small humanoids. Uh, Betty, I never met her. I corresponded with her. And she used to call them the UFO men. They even wore a grey uniform with a cap, which reminded her, and, and, you know, it's not very tasteful. She didn't mean it in person. She meant in look. She reminded her of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So that where did the little grey guys come from? What is it from the abductees or was it from the UFO researchers? That's the question we should be asking. Have we as UFO researchers um, used our, our bias we all have it. We all have confirmation bias one way or another, Jeff. Have we used our own bias, knowingly or unknowingly, to shift the, the, the details of the phenomena to suit our own belief system? And I think you might find that that might have happened with the greys. Okay. Because I, I'm not sure where the origin comes from, to be honest. But they, they are definitely there. They're definitely reported. But as you say, if, if you were if you were in the police and you did a, a lineup, you know, okay, I've been abducted by a little grey guy. Okay, we've gone out and got sure. half a dozen. Which one was it? They'd all be smallish, you know, they'd be four foot tall, four foot six, whatever, you know. So that that's the kind of thing. It's an average. How about the uh, fey folk or slash cryptids? What I'll say about uh, fey folk or fairy lore, you might you might call it. I, I have a, my own personal story. Uh, my late mother um, was born in Northern Ireland. And when she was a child, they lived in a quite a remote spot. So we're going back to the 1930s. My mum was born in 1927. And they lived on a small 
we, we call it a small holding here, but a small farm with a brother and sisters, mum and dad. I'll give you, I'll give you an idea how, how, how far out it was. She had to walk five miles to school on a morning. Gotcha. Five miles back. So, consequently, she didn't go to school much. <laughs> <laughs> but she said they had a little stream, and she said, I would go down and play by the water. And she told me, she says, one day, son, I met a fairy. It was a female fairy, pretty clothes and wings. And she spoke to it. She conversed with it. And he even said, you know, drink from this bottle and you'll never have an accident. And I said, mum, you know, I asked her about it down the decades. It was, you know, she told my children, you know, her, her grandchildren about this meeting with the fairy. I said, was it real, mum? And she said, well, it was real to me, son, you know. Uh, and this wasn't the archetypical leprechaun of Irish mythology or anything like that. So make, again, Jeff, make it what you will. That was my own mother. And she certainly wasn't lying. And um, she told me that story on and off all her life. But do you think and there's that, a relationship between fae folk and cryptids and possible UFO? Well, there is, there is a, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, there is a relationship. Um, if we look at a missing time case today, go back, I forget the date of this, but it's possibly 150 years or so ago. There's an old folk story here. Um, and it's the master who's going home at night on his horse. He's going back and he's got his servant walking behind him. And they get not far from his, his home and he's fed up waiting for the servant because the servant can't walk as fast as the horse. So he says, I'm, I'm going to go on ahead, you know, and I'll meet you back at the house. So off he trots. Hours and hours later, the servant turns up because the master's thinking, where's this, you know, where's he gone? And he says, master, I was abducted by the fairies. He says, they took me to a fairy mound, which was illuminated, but there were no lanterns in it, you know. And of course, he, the, you know, the, the, uh, the servant thinks he's only been gone half an hour or so, and it's hours and hours and hours. Like now, if if we had that reported today, what would we call it? A bender. We'd call it abduction. Oh, well, know, yeah, <laughs> right. Abduction. Yeah, yeah. But so there is a really. Could it be that what we are experiencing today, Jeff, is you know modern day folklore? And whilst we write it down in our books and our, you know and discuss it on here, maybe in 150 years' time, some people will look back on these publications and they'll find the book stored under the folklore section. What is your what's your take on ancient aliens and panspermia, or, or and or panspermia? So they don't have to be connected. Well, ancient aliens is 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 the kind of thing you'd love for it to be real. You really would. I mean, I met Eric von Daniken, who was just like the godfather of the ancient aliens. Pretty well, certainly so. wasn't the first. The modern godfather, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I met him in Vienna back in the, in the 90s at a UFO conference there. He won't remember me. But a lovely fellow, don't get me wrong, a really nice guy. Uh, but, the but the fact is, you know, none of the actual artifacts, you know, can be proven to be anything other than man-made, you know, they're all made out of rock or stone or whatever. So you, but I wouldn't rule out the theory in general. I, I really wouldn't. Um, 
And, and, and you know, it, it, it would be amazing if we found one ancient thing that we could say, there you go. Right. Stick that under your microscope, but it's not there. And by panspermia, I guess in this context, I need to be specific. I, I mean, intelligent design panspermia, not, you know, a, a, a comet, you know, landed here four billion years ago. With well, the, I, I, again, I, I, I'm not of a religious or spiritual nature, so I, I, I you know, don't, I, I follow, you have to remember Charles Darwin. Oh, I mean, I mean, extraterrestrial intelligent design, not God intelligent design. Oh, uh, well, Okay, ET design. I don't know. I mean, what what we're learning all the time, and it's just being confirmed by the pictures from the James Webb Teles Space Telescope, of mm -hmm. course, is the size of the visible universe. It's far bigger than we ever dreamt of, Jeff. It's, it's 40 plus billion light years across. Wow. It's two trillion galaxies. Within those galaxies, there's gazillions of stars and planets. But not only is there more of it, it's further away than we ever expected. So, you know, when we talk about life visiting us here on Earth, I won't ever rule it out, but one is how do they find us in the first place? If I, get, I, I, I give you, I call you Captain Kirk tomorrow, you, you can go off in the Enterprise. Where would you go? <laughs> that's a, that's a know, great question. Uh, where well, would I go? I'd, I'd probably go to the moons of Jupiter. That's probably where well, I'd go. Right, but but you know when you're looking for alien life, how would they find us? And it's, again, it's just just by chance. I was watching a, a, a documentary last night. No, wait, uh, I would swing by the dark side of the moon just because you have to. <laughs> well, I watched a natural history thing, and it was talking about the dolphins, and they have their own rudimentary language. Yep. Dolphins are self-aware, so when they, they put a mirror in the in the swimming pool with them, and they recognize it was themselves. They've even got names for each other, although we don't know what the names are. They just, right. they squeak something. But we can't communicate with them, Jeff. We can get them to jump up in the air right. and catch a fish, you know, but you can't say hello, Flipper. You know, did you sleep all right last night? You know, how's the wife away, you know? So when it comes to intelligence elsewhere, that would have to be surely, you know, many, many, tens of thousands, if not millions of years in advance of us. Is it Carl Sagan who said, you know, if, if aliens appeared here, they would be, no, they would be as if it looked to us like magic. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, I think, said it Arthur first. Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. So we wouldn't recognize them for what, for what they were in the first place. And that's why when we talk about different species, there's, there's some people say, well, there's lots of different aliens visitors here on that. You know, it would be far, it would be that much difficult for one to find us, let alone, now you're talking about lots of them. Sure. Um, and if you if you look back at ufology in general, um, the subject has, has you know, um, progressed, if I, if I want to use the words. Back in the 1950s, it was the Space Brothers. And, you know, the contactees said, uh, oh, they come from the dark side of the moon. Of course, in the 60s, we sent a program to the moon. There is no life there. Well, they come from Venus. Well, we went to Venus, and the, the atmosphere is so hostile there. There's nothing can live there, you know, like, well, they come from Neptune. Now it's interreticulite. So as, as our science expanded, the aliens seem to get further and further. Right, the goalpost keeps moving. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, so, so ufology and, and the creatures in it have evolved. 
um, down the decades. People forget that. But somebody said to me not long ago, where have all the Spice Brothers gone? I thought, well, good question. What a damn good question. You know, I didn't have an answer. And then somebody said, well, why do, why do UFOs have lights on them? Oh, that's another question. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. <laughs> you know and when they mean UFOs, they're talking about spaceships from elsewhere. Of course. Why do they have lights on? Uh, mm. I don't know. Right. It's, it's a good question. Um, right. Why would they question. need? Why would they need lights? They have. They would undoubtedly have technology that will require headlights, and it's not like they're worried about crashing into each other either. <laughs> you know. So yeah. Why would they have lights? Well, there you have Roswell. Right. Why would they come all that way? From, however. From wherever, and then crash. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, simply because that's what we do. Right. You know, we we, we humanize or anthropomorphize everything. Yeah, yeah. Although we never crashed during the moon landings, we almost did in Apollo thirteen. Right. But oh, around about fifty percent of the unmanned missions to Mars have all ended in failure. You know, so we crash. It's as simple as that. And so, you know, we paint that same picture when we're talking about aliens coming here. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. Well, you know, my listeners are, are you know, I, I'm honestly not sure if they're true believers or if they just, you know, enjoy being exposed to this. And, and there's probably people in, in, in all sorts of different camps. So I shouldn't even paint that with a broad brush. But, you know, I, I think what we can glean from your answers is that, you're pretty grounded. You're pretty much a, a, a fact evidence based guy, and you're not you're not you have an open mind, but you're not prone to you know sort of wild speculations. And you know you're not going to connect you know A to K to U to Z and draw and say that's absolutely the conclusion. So uh, you know, so for whatever that's worth, I think people should check out your books because the, you know they're going to hear about high strangeness events, but not not with a sort of uh, jumping to wild conclusions without there being lots of dots there connecting them. Yeah, the books I publish don't re don't reflect my way of thinking or my interest. You know, they reflect ufology in general. So there's something there for everyone, you know, uh, from all different walks of life, from all different belief systems, something there for everyone. And um, it, it, we've covered some of those topics uh, tonight, Jeff. So what it does show you when we talk about these topics that Ufology is not as straightforward as some people would imagine. It's not, is it UFOs? Are, are the aliens or not? It's it's a much broader church than that. And there are lots of other unanswered questions and lots of other possibilities. And um, some of that is reflected in the type of information I've published. And like I said, it is all there at our fingertips. You know, and it's there for us to digest and reach your own conclusion. Because when I entered this subject, uh, Jeff, I really didn't care what the guy sitting next to me, what, what his beliefs were. I entered this for, for me, me only. And right. if I came to the conclusion that UFOs were X, Y, or Z, I don't care if anyone else shares that because I'm not in it for them, I'm in it for me. I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. I had a, a colleague called Albert Pod from London. Albert was a well-known UFO researcher and he set off, you know, doing his own research, published two books, and he, he felt he found the answer. I won't go into it, you know, what he, what he, because it's too long. So once he felt he'd found the answer, that was him finished. He hung up his UFO hat, called it a day, and we've never seen him since, <laughs> you know. And, and, and if I, I, I sometimes envy him, yeah. because if I'd found the answer, we wouldn't be talking 
tonight. He's a satisfied man. Yeah. So that's the way I look at it. And I would, I would, I would share that with others, you know, find your own answers. And once you've found them, perhaps it's time to go and do something else. Or see if you can confirm them with whatever you want. It's entirely up to you. Excellent. Well, I, th I think this is probably a good time to allow you to promote any of your materials, let people know where they can find you, how they can find your books, the books that you publish, and anything else that you want to promote uh, and, and talk about as we, uh, as we wrap this up. Well, thank you, Jeff. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and if you just type in, you know, flyingdispress.com, this with a K, flyingdispress.com, you'll find me. You know, I'm not hidden away somewhere on the, the wild and windy moors. <laughs> you know, I'm here in West Yorkshire. I'm, I'm easily, I'm easily located. Excellent. So yeah, so Flying Disc Press, that's where you can find all of his works. Are there any, uh, you said that there's uh, films and, and documentaries coming out. Do they have titles? Yeah. Do we know the networks that we can look for them? Not at the moment, but we, we are literally beginning to film the Pascagoula documentary series uh, this September. It's with a UK production company, and they will be out there um, in September filming. I will be with them in London at some point, filming my part and others. All I know is it'll be broadcast next year. They, they, you know, they, they, they have no idea yet how many people they're going to interview. All the weaknesses are from our book. Um, we've called the book, it's got a working title of The Pascagoula Close Encounter, Witnesses on the Record. That may well change because the TV company haven't picked their name right, yet. Sure. So we're gonna we're gonna have the same name. So that's a working title. But it's the fiftieth anniversary next year, so it'll be out somewhere around that. And who knows what might pop up in the meantime, Jeff. You never know. Excellent. Well, you'll let us know about any of those things and, and we'll do our part to get it out there. We means me. I like to make it sound like there's a we, but it's mostly me. Um, I say the same thing, Jeff. I always <laughs> say the same thing. Right. It's a, I, I don't know if it's a bad habit or if it's something that's been drilled into us to, you know, you make yourself seem bigger than you are. But it, it's, it's me and my, uh, my fiance who's conscripted into meeting my editor. Um, you know, for what benefits, I have no idea. Um, anyway, uh, I thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being a constant source of authors and material for us. There's a couple others that I have to get, uh, that I have to get to, and I will. Um, you know, I, I like to have variety in the show, so I don't, you know, uh, I, I never want to have too much of the same thing over and over, even though, yes, I admit it, I babble about the Anunnaki and, and a little too much. Sorry, folks. I try, I try not to. I'm aware of it. Um, so very good. All right. So Flying Disc Press, Philip Mantle is on Twitter. Um, you can find uh, his books. Uh, I know a lot of them are on Amazon through, uh, uh, you know, his books and a lot of his authors. Uh, if you want to hear from Irena Scott, she's been on Garden of Doom. And I think the show is called something Pascagoula, so it won't be hard to find. Uh, and uh, many of the other, uh, Trey Hudson was on. Uh, I think it was called Cryptids in the Southlands. Uh, Philip Kinsella has been on. This is, see, this is what I shouldn't have done. I started naming authors that you sent me to the end of the show, and I'm going to forget some. So, so I, 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 I'm, I'm going to stop here, but there's been a bunch. Uh, and uh, so, you know, as always, check out all the shows, of course. Listen to them many, many times. Uh, so thank you very much for coming. Uh, it's evening there, so have a great evening. Definitely keep in touch, and, and good luck with everything. Thank you very much, Jeff. 
All right, thank you. And folks, thanks for listening. Please always rate, review, and refer. We love personal referrals here, and we love written reviews and five-star ratings. And we will catch you next time here in the Garden of Doom. Oh